John chapter 10 is this. And before this, remember, Jesus was talking about being the good shepherd. And he's going to mention that again, the shepherd talk. Now, it was winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication, which, by the way, back in December, I already talked about this, so we're not going to talk about Hanukkah. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade or Solomon's Porch. And since a picture is worth a thousand words, I want to show you some pictures of models of the temple complex in Jesus' day and what the colonnade of Solomon looked like. It could have been, so this was the temple structure itself. Um, we think that the beautiful gate was right there. And in this giant courtyard, scholars think that back in Jesus' day, since this took up one-fourth of the size of Jerusalem in the era of Jesus, and people would come from around the world, they say upwards of 100,000 people could be in this giant temple mount complex for Passover, for Feast of Tabernacles, for other celebrations throughout the year. At this time, it's in December, it's Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And the Colonnade of Solomon might have been these, these covered porches over here, or it might have been this large structure here. Let me show you another picture of a model of the temple complex. Here you'd have the temple proper, uh, now remember, this is the, the peak, ten, more than 10 stories up, where Satan took Jesus and said, just jump off from this and the angels will catch you. And um, so that was where one of the temptations were, where Jesus was transported up there and refused to jump off and do the spectacular. But over here, this, a lot of people think that this is Solomon's colonnade or Solomon's porch. And so this thing would have looked down on the city, but people would have been very small, okay? Like the small of my little, as small as my little red dot on there. And they would have been walking around in these giant, you know, porticos and giant courtyards. And if you would have been inside of this thing, it might have looked something like this, looking out on the temple proper. There you have several stories up and, and the courts and various things, okay? So this is kind of like a giant cathedral or something. And looking down the main corridor, if this is Solomon's portico, other people call it the Royal Stoa. But the only difference would be, this is a, another model that someone else has made. If you were inside, you would have been up really high if it was the main area like this. And if it was something smaller, then the only difference is that the ceiling would have been shorter because you would have had several pillars holding this thing up. And so you can imagine in the winter when they did get rains, the people would go in there and do their, you know, their, their prayers in there and talk with each other and socialize and gather. And so it, this is the scene of Jesus who will be surrounded by religious leaders in just a moment. You'll see it. And they, they come to him, okay? So the people surrounded him and asked, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus replied, I've already told you and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. So I don't know if you caught it in the text, but they actually surround him. And this is the December before the Easter when he's crucified. 
And they were ready in this passage to stone him at, the, at, at this point, and we'll see that in just a moment. But they surround him and they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? And they are antagonistic, and Jesus is saying, I told you, but you, you, you don't believe. And he says, the proof is the work that I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And so he again brings up the image of him being the good shepherd. The last couple verses of Hebrews says that he's the great shepherd who leads us who are his sheep. Now it's important to, it's important to keep in mind that there's people out there who aren't his sheep. Now there's many who will become his sheep who are pre-believers and we have to keep that in mind that God can change the heart of anyone like Saul of Tarsus who's persecuting the church. But there are indeed some people who are not his sheep. And how does he deal with them? He, he still speaks the truth and he says, you don't believe me because you don't belong to me. I give them eternal life, talking about those who believe in him, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So I think this is the highlight verse of this passage we're looking at today. So I'm going to come back to it after we get through the rest of the chapter. For my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him, which I'm not sure if they're there in a pavement area. I was kind of thinking, what stones you know, were, they, were they picking up? I don't, I'm not exactly sure, but they got stones. They might have been bricks. Maybe they were still doing some construction and they decided to go raid a pile of bricks or something and they're getting ready to stone him. Jesus said, (coughs) excuse me, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we're not stoning you for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. So there you have it in the scripture. Sometimes people will say, well, the New Testament never says that Jesus said that he's the son of God or that he said he's God. In reality, he did. The first audience, these religious leaders, they understood it. He plainly said it to the woman at the well in John 4. He plainly said it to the man that he healed on the, on the Sabbath with his, his eyes, you know, the mud, the spit thing. Have you forgotten? My favorite miracle where he spit, not in his eyes, but on the ground, made mud. And so, let's go on. Verse 34, Jesus replied, It is written in your own scriptures that God said to certain leaders of the people, I say you are gods. Now, he's quoting Psalm 82, which this is a confusing passage for me, and I need to dig into this a little more, and maybe we'll talk about Psalm 82 next week, because it's a pretty cool psalm, but I'm not going to touch on that topic too much. Uh, And you know that the scriptures cannot be altered. So if those people who received God's message were called gods, why do you call it blasphemy when I say I'm the son of God? After all, the father set me apart and sent me into the world. So he's he's referring to scripture, which says uh, you're gods, you're Elohim. And he's making a rabbinical argument, which when we approach the scripture it kind of gets into some some technical stuff that that I want to explore a little more next week but William Barclay in commenting on this he's an old um, I think he was Scottish 
but he wrote a set of commentaries that still today, I don't agree with everything that he wrote, but they're a wonderful set of commentaries. The Daily Study Bible, is that what it is, Art? Art reads William Barclay. And in commenting on this, he said that Jesus came so that we would become like he is. So this is kind of profound, thinking about this Psalm 82. We'll look at it next week. But Jesus came so that we'd become like he is. Now, we're not going to be all-knowing. We're not going to be, uh, what are the things that God is? He's omnipresent, which means the Father and the, the Spirit is everywhere. I'm not sure about Jesus since he's God. I, you know, he is omnipresent also, but yet he has, if I could use the word, confined himself to a human body ever since Ever since the angel announced to Mary that she would be with child. I was about to say ever since Bethlehem when he was born, but Jesus was that zygote, that embryo, that fetus, that baby, even in Mary's womb, right? So it was even before Bethlehem that God decided to limit himself into a human body. And so do you ever think about that, that right at the right hand of the Father, we are represented, human beings, right there in the person of Jesus. And every time the Father looks over at Jesus, he sees redeemed humanity. He sees the sacrifice of Jesus and he sees you. And so he's able, if I might apply the words that the Father first gave to Jesus, he's able to communicate to us, behold, my beloved son or daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. He is well pleased with you because of the love that the Son has for the Father, the love that the uh, Father has for the Son and the Spirit has for the Son and the Father has for the Spirit. And within that community of the Trinity, it is our hope and it is our destiny. And so um, there's this remarkable book by Richard Wormbrand. He started, he was a pastor in Romania during the end of World War II when the Nazis were in Romania, as well as the, when the communists came in from the Soviet Union and took over. And he w- wrote this remarkable book, which has had a large impact upon the world, called Tortured for Christ. And he writes about a, 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 a man of the Central Committee of the Communist Party there in Romania named Rec. And Rec was responsible to torture this Christian named Grecu. And he writes this on page 42. He says, During the beatings, Rec said something to Grecu that the communists often said to Christians. You know, I am God. I have the power of life and death over you. The one who is in heaven cannot decide to keep you in life. Everything depends upon me. If I wish you live, if I wish you are killed, I am God. And so he mocked the Christian, Wormbrand writes. Brother Grecu, in this horrible situation, gave Rec a very interesting answer, which I heard, this is Wormbrand writing, which uh, I heard afterwards from Rec himself. He said, you don't know what a deep thing you have said. Every caterpillar is in reality a butterfly if it develops rightly. You have not been created to be a torturer, a man who kills. You have been created to become like God, with the life of the Godhead in your heart. 
Many who have been persecutors like you have come to realize, like the Apostle Paul, that it is shameful for a man to commit atrocities and that they can do much better things. So they have become partakers of the divine nature. He's quoting 1 Peter there. Jesus said to the Jews of his time, Ye are gods. Believe me, Mr. Wreck, your real calling is to be godlike, to have the character of God, not a torturer. Isn't that good? There's a lot of stories in this book that are just beautiful because we in America, up to this point, have not experienced the atrocities of communism and socialism and fascism. But um, we're always, Reagan said, that we're always just one generation away from, from liberty's light going out. That if we forget the values of Western civilization, if we forget the things on which our society, you know, the principles on, on which we've decided to do this thing called, you know, America. And it's not just about America. It's about the West. It's, it's about, you know, freedom all around the world for people to determine, you know, how they're going to serve other people and how they're going to make a living and all those different things, okay? You get what I'm saying? Um, our destiny is to become like gods. And so I thought that was a good little commentary on this part here. Verse 37, uh, don't believe me unless I carry out my Father's work. So Jesus is saying, you, you've seen these incredible things that I've done, and these are the testimony. These are the proof that I'm the Son of God. Now there's something coming in John chapter 11 that we'll look at soon, probably in two weeks, because I want to look at Psalm 82 next week. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So he's already healed people, and then it's kind of like the ultimate test where he has the ability to actually raise people from the grave. And we looked at last, last week, he actually has the ability to raise himself from the grave, along with the Father, along with the Spirit, and that's just what will happen. But this isn't the time. So he's basically saying the proof is in the pudding, right? You see what I'm doing here. Now, this is a kind of a funny saying because we actually don't get it quite right. Who likes pudding? Uh, me and Janelle and a few others. Some of you seem a little ashamed. I'm not sure <laughs> why. I like getting butterscotch pudding from down at the dollar store. And I just, I just absolutely love it. So this saying, the proof is in the pudding, is a... Anybody like rice pudding too? Do you like that stuff? Good stuff, huh? It's actually an old English saying. It's a very old proverb. And the original wasn't the proof is in the pudding. It's the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's the original proverb that we've kind of lost in modern America. So I'm going to explain it to you. So think about that. The proof, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. It meant that you would only know if food is good if you ate it. And that's what the proof is in the pudding means. Did you, did you know that? Um, now get this, this gets sick, okay? Um, in Britain, dating back centuries, pudding meant something different than a sweet dessert. Now does anyone know what pudding was back in the old time? Do you know, Cindy? And I'll get, huh? What? Oh, there we go. 
yeah, and we'll ex- I'll elaborate on it. Michelle. Very good. Thank you. I appreciate the culinary expertise. When my wife and I were married, because in my family, Seitz is a German name, and it's passed along, you know, the the last name in our culture goes on and on, but my dad married uh, McAlpine, so that's a Scottish name, but like on my mom's side, her mom was a Smith, so Scottish, English, my dad's mom was a Phillips, and there was a bunch of English women all the way through. So I'm probably like more English and, you know, like a Heinz 57 than I am German, but I love that German name. And they were German Lutherans that came out from Germany, from Stuttgart in the, it was either early 1900s or late 1800s. And Marvin and I get into things like this because he's into genealogy, and it's, it's very interesting. So they came out from Stuttgart, and came to Michigan, and then my dad moved from Michigan out to Montana. So his dad, for our wedding, when he, my grandpa Ormond Seitz from Michigan, who learned German in the home when he was just a kid, but World War II changed that. They stopped speaking German in the war, but one of his sister's husbands actually translated uh, German into, you know, for the American army in the European theater in World War II. And I had other great aunts who did, you know, stuff like Rosie the Riveter type things. And his father was in World War I. And so they were Germans who gave a great German-American, you know, contribution to both world wars. And so my grandpa, being uh, German, they'd eat these weird things like succotash. Have you ever heard of succotash? It's like weird. And what my dad would do is he'd, he'd take kidney beans and corn and just cook it up, like boil it up, and that was succotash. But I, don't, I think that was like a poor man's succotash. I'm not sure. And then other weird foods. So we get this cookbook from my grandpa, and we're out in tangent land, okay? But are you enjoying it? Are you with me? <laughs> we're out in tangent land. The... the the slide, you know, is my justification for this. And in this German cookbook, it, it talks about things like eating cow brains and the tail of a cow, the tongue of a cow, and different things that me and my wife are just repulsed. And, and we got rid of this German cookbook. But some of you guys might like this. So what's the point of all this? Pudding was a type of sausage, it often referred to a type of sausage in which you'd put a bunch of minced meat and other ingredients and probably the, the, the blood as well into the intestines of an animal and there you have your pudding or your, you know, a type of sausage. So the point is to test things by eating them to, to, to see if they're good. So all those nasty things versus what we eat, I'll take the butterscotch pudding, right? But you know, we do this all the time. We say, you know, go down to the car lot and kick the tires. Or we say, go take it for a test drive. In other words, test it out. And the scriptures have this same sort of momentum in Psalm 34, verse 8, when it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not like eating liver or succotash or cow's brains. What the Lord intends for us is so delightful, so delicious, we partake of him and we realize this is good. 
I like this. I like the person that I become when I'm in Christ and when Christ is in me. So the passage goes on in verse 38, and the Lord says, But if I do his work, believe the evidence of the miraculous works that I've done. Okay, the proof's in the pudding. I heal people. I give them sight when they're blind. I give them hope when they're in despair. I lift them up. I mean, think about how he changed Zacchaeus. Jovian and I were doing a little Bible study about Zacchaeus. He shows up, and Zacchaeus, who's a tax collector and has been robbing people, you know, but all with the authority of the state, just like communist Romania, robbing people of their resources. And when Jesus shows up, he says, well, the people that I've defrauded, I will uh, pay back, I will give restitution fourfold, and I'll take half of my treasure that I have and give it to the poor. And Jesus says, surely salvation has come to this house, and behold, Zacchaeus is also a son of Abraham. So the proof is in the pudding. Faith works itself out through good works, not to attain salvation, but to say, thank you, Lord. You're so wonderful. I can't help but be a giver because you're a giver and you've given me so much. I can't help but tell the truth because you're truthful and you're the way, the truth, and the life. And things like this where it just naturally flows out of our hearts. Behold, how good And how pleasing it is for the brothers and the sisters to dwell together in unity. Just as God is unified within the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so too can we experience this unity of purpose, this unity of holiness and justice and righteousness, which means rightness. We can experience that with other believers in marriage, in friendships, with our children, with our parents. It's not easy because we live in a fallen world and we struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. But it is possible because uh, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, even the difficult things. So Jesus goes on and he says, it's not because of good things, Well, let me read it over. Verse 38. But if I do his work, believe in the evidence of the miraculous works I've done. Even if you don't believe me, then you will know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. Part of it is that they had certain expectations associated with the title Messiah or Christ in Greek that he wanted them to see that the Christ is also the suffering servant of Isaiah 52, 53, 54 where he's the one who will be marred beyond all uh, recognizability. And, And he experienced that at the cross. Once again, they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. It's kind of interesting in the paraphrase of the New Testament, the Passion Translation, the guy who translates this, he's got in his footnote, he says, Jesus at this point, because they have him surrounded, they're ready to stone him, and, and the guy in his footnote, he says, Jesus might have actually like dematerialized and disappeared and, and reappeared somewhere else, because if he's surrounded, if they got him there, how did he get through the crowd? The text just tells us that they tried to arrest him, but he got away and left them. And we we don't know. Other people assume he just kind of slipped through the crowd, but they're mad. 
they're upset, and he slips away one way or the other. Uh, he went beyond the Jordan River near the place where John, John the Baptist, was first baptizing and stayed there a while. And many followed him. John didn't perform miraculous signs, they remarked to one another, but everything he said about this man has come true. In other words, everything John said about Jesus, it's happening. And many who were there believed in Jesus. So in this passage, Jesus declared to the people who he was. He showed the religious authorities that he was God by giving sight to the blind, hope to the poor, mercy to sinners. Remember the woman caught in adultery? And he says, hey, let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. He was the only one qualified to start throwing stones, and yet he didn't. And he gives us that same grace today. But the people refused to believe, the ones who were opposed to him, that is, because lots of people here believe in him. But the ones who weren't his sheep refused to believe. Jesus also declared that there was a unity between him and the Father and that all those who trust him will always be secure, which brings us to this, the central point that I want to bring out. He said, I give them eternal life, this is you, they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so sometimes in the church we have this uh, debate between once saved, always saved, and what people will say, well, do you believe that people can lose their salvation? And those are a couple ways to describe it. I don't really like those ways of describing it because somehow the scriptures put within uh, this collection of books that we call the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, the Bible teaches that the believer in Christ is indeed secure in his or her salvation, and yet the New Testament says that we should continue to pay attention to our relationship with the Lord, that we can backslide, that we can lose progress, and that there's this continuum, if you will, on the one hand, where people will say, well, this work of healing and restoration in my life that we call salvation, it's God's work because he gave it to me, and on the other hand, we say that you must believe that you need to turn to the Lord and that your, your outlook, your attitude, your will is very important. All Christians believe that, that I have a role to play in my relationship with God, and all Christians believe that it's entirely a gift of the Father. And yet there's this continuum where some people are like, it's, it's more of an emphasis upon God's sovereignty, that he can do whatever he wants. And if you get way to the extreme over here, it actually, the church called it heresy in the early church. They called it Pelagianism because a man named Pelagius said, it's all our doing. It's all human doing. And so the church said, no, that's heresy. We don't believe it's all humankind's decision. But we're all on this kind of continuum where we believe that it's a partnership, right? And I want you to know that your salvation is indeed secure because Jesus said, that no one can snatch you out of the hand of the Father. And I think that would be even ourselves, you know, where it's like, yeah, I struggle and I trip and I fall and I, you know, stumble, but yet I, my trust isn't in myself, it's in God. And unless you're going to say, well, I totally deny the Lord, then he's not going to give up on you. It's kind of like when people's kids are little it's one thing to be walking with your little guy 
or little girl, we're talking short people, okay, and to say, now put your hand, hold on to my hand real good as we cross the street. Well, it's one thing for your child to grab onto your hand, maybe a finger, and you say, hold on real tight. And it's another thing for you to grab onto their wrist because you know that you are not going to let go of that child if they are in genuine danger. And I would say it's that kind of a grip. Do we have any kids here or that want to? They're all in kids' church. But um, Becky, come here. I'll use you for the illustration. There's a difference. Do you know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, Becky's going to play the part of a kid. And so if we're heading somewhere, it's one thing. Becky, hold my hand so you don't lose, you know. And I got the limp hand thing going. I don't want to lose you. But it's another thing to just grab onto her arm so that I know no matter where we're going. Now, this is the picture. But if we were to go over there where we say it's all God's work, it would be like me picking up my bride, you know, after the wedding and, and doing all the work, which I'm not going to do, or pick up a child in your arms, that's not the picture. We still walk with God. That's why it's neither extreme. Thank you, Becky. That's why it's neither extreme. I don't just pick up, even though that footprints poem is really cool and I like it. I'm not dissing on that. You know, If you haven't heard that before, just later, Google the footprints poem if you're new to you know, our, our culture of faith, but that's a beautiful poem. I don't totally pick up my kid, but neither do I leave it up to them to just hold on to my pinky finger. And so this is the picture that we have of the Father, which I think is a balanced new covenant picture, that it is a partnership, and yet we're totally secure. That It's not like, oh, where'd my salvation go? Like, did I leave it in the car? It's not that sort of thing, but it's realizing that we do have a will, and that if we want to forsake our confidence, then that is easily lost. Do you know what I'm saying? But your, your eternal security is not at risk if you've given your life to the Lord. When I first prayed to the Lord, I probably prayed like 40 times because they said, you need to you know, pray to receive Christ. And I didn't think it was good enough. But then finally I realized as I started reading the Bible, it's like, okay, I can you know, stop accepting the Lord for 40 times and, and realize he's, he's got me, okay? Does that help you out? You know, so sometimes we focus on, on our life, and let's say that this is our life before we die. This is an illustration used by Francis Chan that I saw, and some of you might have seen it. So we will worry about things like, our, where am I going to live when I'm retired? You know, if I'm whatever, live in the church parsonage. <laughs> okay, I'll just tell you the way I think about things. You know, where am I going to live? Sooner or later, I'm not going to be the pastor until I'm 90, maybe 80, but not 90. And so we'll have to get a house or a condo later on. You know, so I worry about that because I'm at this point in my life, like maybe the beginning of midlife, and I'm thinking about when I'm 90 or 100, which I, I plan to live to 100, okay? And amen? I didn't hear many amen. <laughs> amens there. Um, I just th throw that out there. And live a good life. We should all plan on that. But life for us goes on and on and on because this is eternity so i could think about my you know retirement funds and different things and and your health is actually probably a really really good thing to think about even more than finances or housing as we get older to take care of your body because if you could 
this is just Mark's little opinion, but it's like if you're still well enough to go work down at Walmart and greet people when you're 65 years old or 70 years old, right? I mean, maybe that's worth more than, or, or it's just worth mentioning, you know? So, but our life goes on and on where, of course, I'm gonna go be with the Lord, but what am I gonna be doing if that's 100 years, how much do you think this is? Someone raise your hand and tell me. 10,000 years. It really, and people have a debate about this because sometimes people are like, well, we won't even know what it's like to be in heaven. I don't think so. Like, I, I, I think since we're going to be in human bodies and the Bible talks about tree of life and water and the new Jerusalem as a city, I think we're going to recognize a lot of different things. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, says that just like you recognize, if you took someone from 100 years ago that drove uh, a Model A or a Model T, they wouldn't know anything about air conditioning because that hadn't been invented 100 years ago yet, but they would see a car today with wheels and the, the Model A had wheels. A steering wheel, the Model A had a steering wheel. Gasoline, the Model A burned gasoline, right? And they would recognize it as a car. Now, you might have all kinds of cool features like air conditioning that haven't been invented yet. And you could start praying for that, right? Maybe some of us want that. Um, but the Lord might put all kinds of c cool, souped-up features in the resurrection body, but you will still know what it is because it's a human, glorified, resurrected body. So 10,000 years from now, what will you be, be doing? And 20,000 years from now. And we start talking about these huge numbers, and it's like we can't you know, begin to fathom it, and yet we were designed for eternity. Now, unfortunately, this rope has an end, but the illustration is that we end up focusing on just a little bit of this rope that is our life, and sometimes we forget that it was that much, right? I'm not going to live to 200 we forget that this thing just goes on and on and on, and it's, it's about that. It's about being like, Lord, you're, just, you're never going to let me be snatched from your hand. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Our destiny is indeed to become Christ-like. Um, D.L. Moody said that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. And this work that the church calls sanctification it's the growth in grace. God is preparing us for our eternal glory. Let me close with one final illustration, again from Richard Wormbrand, because I find this compelling. He says how when one Christian was sentenced to death, again, communist Romania, he was allowed to see his wife before being executed. His last words to his wife were, you must know that I die loving those who kill me. They don't know what they do, and my last request of you is to love them too. Don't have bitterness in your heart because they killed your beloved one. We will meet in heaven. These words impressed the officer of the secret police who attended the discussion between the two. He, the secret police officer, later told me the story in prison where he had been sent for becoming a Christian.